going to be looking at the whole chapter of Galatians chapter 1 and thinking of the themes set forth in that chapter. If you would, please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we want to invite you to move this morning as you will. We want to trust that the Spirit of God is alive and well, and we, we want Him to be alive and well in this place. Uh, Father, we do not want to be prideful in our, in our uh, thinking that we understand so well that they, we don't still have to learn and be reminded the very simple truth and essence of the gospel. Uh, Father, the, uh, the age that we live in and the, the church culture that we live in is just as prone to confusion as, as the church culture was 2,000 years ago, and we continue to need your Spirit to guide us in all truth and righteousness. Um, Lord, I pray that you bring clarity this morning. Um, speak through me as you will. May you become greater and I become less. Father, we pray, I pray, Lord, for open ears and open hearts that we do not check out. We do not think, oh, I know this stuff. But, Lord, that we examine our own heart and life to make sure, Lord God, that we are in the faith according to Christ and according to His Word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians is a letter um, or an epistle, which just means something sent. It's a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the community of Christians in the ancient region known as Galatia. Uh, Galatia was actually not a city, but it was a region, and it's found in, in what we know as modern-day Turkey. Um, there's some questioning, just a little bit of background, there's some question of the precise dating of the letter, but if the letter was written to the southern cities uh, in Galatia that Paul visited on his first missionary journey, Galatians may be one of the earliest writings we have in the New Testament. Um, the Galatian church would have been a mixed community, um, probably much more mixed than we have, for example, even here this morning. Um, we, uh, when you look across this group, it's fairly mono. Of course, I say that, and we're probably more mixed than uh, we would appear to be, right? Because we do have mixed backgrounds, we have mixed um, spiritual upbringings and experiences. But the, the church in Galatia would have been a very mixed community, um, in age, and gender, in social status, in race. They would have had varied religious backgrounds or non-religious backgrounds. They would have, have had varied moral backgrounds or immoral backgrounds. It would have been an extremely diverse community. Men, women, children, Jews, Gentiles, which just would mean non-Jews, slaves, free men, all living in community together, sharing life, learning together, serving together, worshiping together, reaching out together. You could have in the same assembly a master of a slave and his slave, and within the church, they were equals before God. Uh, Galatians has been called by some as the Magna Carta of the church, its em emphasis is the essential purity and truth 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is just that, that the gospel is a gospel of faith in Jesus Christ, okay? I'll say that again. Sounds very simple. That the gospel, the good news is that it is a gospel and good news received by faith in Jesus Christ. Anything more, anything less is no gospel at all. As usual, the challenge for us as we go through Galatians is not just to see these events um, and these words in their historical setting, but to consider and understand how they may speak to us today, to reaffirm the truth of the gospel and to put aside all else that would present itself as such. I want you to listen. (laughs) to reaffirm the truth of the gospel and to put aside all else that would present itself as such. I don't know what is scabbed onto the gospel in your life. I don't know what your spiritual upbringing has scabbed onto the gospel. I don't know what your tradition of religiosity has scabbed onto the gospel. But the goal would be to reaffirm the truth and purity of the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ and be willing to put aside all else that presents itself as such. And then in turn to continue to apply the reality of the truth of the gospel in our lives daily and moment by moment in its transforming work. So this morning, we're just going to introduce by focusing on two simple things, simple but profound. Number one, that the gospel is not man-made, that it is not an invention of man, but that it is a heavenly edict. And what that means is, is that all other religiosity, whether it presents itself as you acknowledge as a false religion or it presents itself as Christian, if it is not the true gospel, it is man-made because the true gospel is a heavenly edict. And number two, not everything that presents itself, as I said, as Christian is really Christian For there is only one true gospel. It's a heavenly edict, and there is only one. Let's read together Galatians chapter 1. I'll start from verse 1, and we'll read right through the end of the chapter. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me, To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You can add your amen to that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Paul continues, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, and now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one uh, other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I will not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately to Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God. Because of me. Hmm. Some powerful words. Paul gets right into it, doesn't he? In many of his letters, Paul says, I thank God for you, for this and that. And, and, um, but he, I, I, I pray for you, and so on and so forth. But Paul doesn't do that here. He greets them with, with profound and meaningful words. And then he gets right to it. He gets right to a loving confrontation and he speaks about a true gospel that needs to be adhered to, that needs to be understood, that needs to be treasured and kept as singular and true above all other. He says, if anyone else preach a different gospel, may they be eternally condemned. He even includes himself in that, doesn't he? He said, even if we were to preach a different gospel, may may we be eternally condemned. If an angel were to come and preach a different gospel, uh, the Mormon religion is based a lot on that, right? That an angel came and gave a revelation, an extra revelation. If an angel is to come and preach a different gospel, may he be eternally condemned. Those are strong words. 
These early churches were, not, were clearly not utopian societies. So if you think that, you can put that thought aside, right? There's, there's some fundamentals that we should be adhering to that they were, that they were um, doing in the uh, early churches that we sometimes move away from, but they were not utopian societies. Their beauty was not in the ease of the working out of their faith. It was in the perseverance of the working out of their faith. Their perseverance in the face of testing and trial, which was a steady flow. It was not in their ease of the working out of their faith. It was in the perseverance of the working out in their faith of their faith as it is for us. It's not in the ease of community. It is in the perseverance of community. It is not in the ease of belief. It's in the perseverance of belief. One constant challenge for these early churches was the infiltration of uh, certain teachers, uh, in quotations, right? They were actually false teachers that would present themselves as having authority and proclaim that what these communities had been taught was incomplete, that they had new truth and new revelation to teach the churches. Now, again, we'll get into this, what, what these folks were, re, were receiving as new revelation brought them deep into what we would call legalism. Um, there were other false teachers that, remember when we went through our Revelation series, through the, the churches in Revelation, false teachers that entered the church that, that brought them deep into um, a liberalism in their faith where it was kind of anything goes and immorality was ruling in many of these churches. None of those presents the true fruit of the gospel. Okay, Neither of those do. There's a need... There was a need and there is a need for great discernment to be able to distinguish between sound and false doctrine. And as always, the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know and be firmly grounded in the authentic. And that's what Paul does. If you have the the, the folks that study uh, bills and counterfeit bills, the way they know if they're counterfeit is that they know every single detail they're intimately acquainted with the authentic. Because they know the authentic so well, and they are so deeply invested in knowing the authentic, the counterfeit stands out as obvious. These false teachers that infiltrated the Galatian churches commonly referred, were commonly referred to as Judaizers. And uh, they came after Paul and questioned his authority and the validity of what he was teaching. So Paul takes much of this early section of the, of the letter. Again, I would say the first chapter. We see it in chapter and verse. Obviously, he didn't write chapter 1, verse 1 through 24. But he takes much of the early section of this letter to remind the believers who exactly he is. He, he says, listen, you've you got to remember who I am. Okay? Remember who I am. Remember who you received the message from. Paul is an apostle. What does that mean? What does it mean that Paul's an apostle? I mean, can't we just say that, Paul, that an apostle is a messenger or a sent one? 
Well, the, the way that the, biblic, the biblical narrative uses the word apostle is very specific, okay? The, the, the fact that Paul was an apostle means that he was called and commissioned directly by the person of Jesus himself, okay? Now, you are called by the Holy Spirit if you believe in God. You are commissioned by Christ, but an apostle had to be directly, an authentic apostle had to be directly called and commissioned by the person of Jesus. This is why today we do not have any more apostles in the truest sense of the word. The gospel was entrusted to the original apostles who had, a, who had divine authority and wrote with divine inspiration. So to say he's an apostle is important. The Judaizers that came after him were not apostles. Paul is saying, I came with divine authority and divine inspiration. Paul takes his time to remind the Galatian believers uh, who he formerly was. Let me, let me remind you who I was. That, that Paul was once thoroughly grounded in Judaic legalism. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Paul had the ultimate religious pedigree. He goes on in other letters to talk about that he was just from the tribe he was uh, born in, from who taught him, um, to his excelling in, in every area. He had the ultimate religious pedigree. He excelled in Jewish religion, in, in activity and study and status. The guys, the Judaizers that came after him could not compare. They would pale in comparison to his religiosity, to his faithfulness and fervor in the Jewish religion. Paul was so zealous for the purity of the Jewish faith that he looked to snuff out what he perceived as an intense threat to it. This new Jewish faction, as it was understood at the time, of followers of Jesus. He was so zealous for his Judaism that he persecuted the church intently, intensely. He was the one there, remember, when Stephen was stoned. Hey, let me hold your coats for you guys. So you can hold those stones and throw them at Stephen and kill him rock by rock. He is the one that gave them the approval. He says, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. So Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a religious man's religious man. So listen. You can be as far from God as an intensely religious person as you can be as an intensely immoral person. Okay? Say that again. You can be as far from God as an intensely religious person as you can be for, as an intensely immoral person. Religion in and of itself never has and never will save a single soul. 
Okay? Religion in of itself never has and never will save a single soul. The traditions of any church will never have saving power. The fact that you're sitting in this building facing me doesn't make you saved, okay? Doesn't grant you eternal life. The traditions of this church, the traditions of your home church, does not have saving power. Religion in and of itself never saved a single soul. Someone can be as far from God being religious as they can being immoral, and I would even say possibly farther because they are so self-deceived. But nobody is out of God's reach, are they? Paul was far from God, though he thought... Was he being sincere? Was Paul a sincere guy? Yeah, Paul was both feet in, man. He was both feet in no matter what he did. And God knew that. God used him for that. He was both feet in to his religion. Both, he's going to persecute the church. They're, 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 they're a threat to his faith. He's going to do it both feet in. He was a sincere guy but he was sincerely wrong. But no one is out of the reach of God. The only thing that saves is the same thing that changed the man who wrote this letter. It is an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ by faith. An authentic encounter with Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that will, you'll, only place you'll find salvation. Paul knew what it was to have his identity wrapped up in religious fervor and legalism. What did that get him? It might have got him the approval of man. He said, if I am still trying to gain the approval of men, so he realizes in hindsight, all that did for me was gain the approval of men. So to be very religious, you might get the approval of men, but you are not getting the approval of God. It is only in Jesus that someone is changed from the inside out. In Acts 9, we learn that Paul, formerly known as Saul, was confronted by the risen Jesus himself, the person of Jesus. You remember the story? He's knocked off his horse, right? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He's looking around. He's he's blinded by this light. Lord, who are you? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And Jesus simply instructs him, go, to, go into the city, you'll meet a man. And this man, Ananias, was, was also saw a vision of the Lord and prepared that Paul was going to come. Paul meets up with Ananias, he's blinded for three days. Once Ananias confirms this with him, it says something like scales fell off his eyes and all of a sudden he can see Again, or maybe really for the first time, and he, is, he goes and is baptized in the name of Christ. This encounter that Paul went through brought him from a religious man to a changed man. Okay? 
brought him from a religious man to a changed man. Paul is now different than who he was. He's a new creation in Christ. Paul's very identity has changed in that moment. This is what the gospel of Jesus does when someone receives it. It changes your identity. It changes the very essence of who you are from the inside out. Jesus brings alive the very spirit within you, and you are forever changed. I mean, I'd say, well, I don't always feel changed. I I still struggle with the person that I was, and I still wrestle, and, and some days I feel very fleshly, and I don't feel so spiritual. Here's the deal. If Jesus got a hold of your life, and you turn to him by faith, in faith, you are changed. You are different. The very essence of your being is changed. You are a new creation in Christ. Your mind, your behavior, your values, your perspectives, your reactions might all have to catch up. But you're different. You're a new person. You have a new identity. And Paul, who was plowing ahead on a course that he felt was noble, and he felt was right, was disastrously off course before he met Christ. Maybe you're on a course that you feel is noble. Maybe you're on a course that you feel is right. You're like, hey man, I take care of my family. I try and do the right thing. I go to church every once in a while. Maybe I go to church every Sunday. Hey, I, I put a few bucks in the tithe box. I, you know, I, uh, I say hello to my neighbor. I'm friendly. Listen, your course, you might feel it's as noble as can be. You might feel it's as right as can be. But it might be disastrously off course. It is the gospel and the person of Jesus that changes our identity. And it's the same gospel and person of Jesus that then changes our course. I am changed from the inside out. The very essence of who I am is changed. Like I said, my mind might have to catch up with that. And then the course that I am is is drastically changed. Was Paul's course changed that day? Completely changed. Completely changed. He begins a new course. He says, God called me to reveal his son among the Gentiles. So upon accepting the gospel, our destiny becomes inseparably tied to that gospel and the person that it represents, Jesus Christ. To reveal God's son in the world. Your destiny has become united with the gospel. You realize that? So maybe you need to ask yourself, has my course changed? I profess, I profess Christ. Has my course changed? Or am I as self-seeking and greedy and, and ambitious for my own agenda as ever? Has your course changed? It changes your identity and it changes your course. You, you are inseparably tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you may still be a businessman, but you're a businessman to bring glory to God through the gospel. Amen? 
You understand? So before you're a businessman for your own gain. You're a businessman for your, your own greed, your own ambition. Now I'm a businessman for Jesus. Get it? Maybe you're a garbage man. I don't care. It's probably not as important as we think. Whether you're a businessman, a doctor, or a garbage man, I am now, my course has changed. I do not do these things for myself and my own selfish ambition. I do them for the sake of Jesus Christ and His gospel. That I may glorify Him in all that I do. That I may honor and reflect Him and influence people for that cause in all that I do. Before you're a mother, and, and you're, you're taking care of your kids, and, and, there's, and that's all good, but, but now you're a mother for Jesus. Your course has changed. It's not just about seeing these little kids uh, do the right thing or, or getting their love and feeling some satisfaction because I'm getting this love, and then they leave the nest, and oh my goodness, who am I? <laughs> your identity is wrapped up in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're, you're, you're mothering or grandmothering or what have you is it, to glorify Christ. You get it? It changes your identity. It changes your course. The Apostle Paul, the man who God used to proclaim the truth of the gospel beyond Jerusalem, did not receive this message or commission from heaven, uh, from human origin, but from Jesus himself. He's an apostle. He received it from the person of Jesus. So Paul is emphasizing that this gospel of Jesus Christ is not man-made, but it is a heavenly edict. All other versions, no matter how attractive, are earthly and false. It is God's good news, not man's good news. So any other quote-unquote gospel, whether it's delivered by a preacher, whether it's delivered by a spiritual guru, whether it's delivered by a motivational speaker, whether it's delivered by your financial advisor, I don't know, is not the true gospel because that is man's gospel and God's gospel is the heavenly edict. Paul says these Christians in Galatia were turning to a different gospel. Now what does he specifically mean by turning to a different gospel. Didn't these people profess Jesus? Hey, I believe in Jesus. Didn't they, didn't they uh, believe in his uh, death and resurrection? Yes, they did. And what this different gospel amounted to was simply this, Christ plus. Christ plus. To really be saved, you must trust in Christ, plus you must do such and such and so and so. To really have eternal life, to really be changed from the inside out, to really change your identity and your course, is trusting in Jesus Christ, plus fill in the blank. Remember, not everything that presents itself as Christian is really Christian. Not everything that presents itself as Christian is really Christian. Not everything that presents itself as the gospel is really the gospel. And sometimes we have to examine really hard to separate the wheat and the chaff, right? Because there can be some things that we were even brought up in, well-intending people, well-intending traditions, that we got to start separating the wheat and the chaff. Not everything that's, that's presented as Christian or the gospel is really Christian. 
Now, for these Galatians, they're being told that their problem was specifically that to the Judaizers were coming in and saying to be a Christian, to really be a Christian, means you also have to be Jewish. You have to adhere to the Jewish laws, specifically ceremonial laws that were passed down and signs of the covenant by Moses. So, in other words, uh, a very big issue, and you hear this a lot through Paul's writing, would be men, if you're really a Christian, yeah, trust in Christ, but these Gentiles would not have been circumcised. Yeah, real physical circumcision. This doesn't tend to be as much of an issue in our culture because it tends to be the norm among boys in our culture, but it wouldn't have been the norm in these non-Jewish cultures in that day. That was a Jewish sign of the covenant, okay? So what these Judaizers would come in, imagine men, you dare I say this, the little kids are going to come home and say, what does the preacher mean? So men, imagine you are not circumcised for a moment, okay? So you grown men and even you teenage guys, whatever, you are not circumcised. And then the Judaizers come in and say, well, it's great that you trusted in Jesus, but circumcision is the sign of the covenant from way back in the day, all the way from Moses. So to really be a Christian... You're going to get circumcised. Or, okay, okay, or what you have to do to really be a Christian is change some dietary um, habits that you have. You can't eat that, you can't eat that, you can't eat that. Oh, or to really be a Christian, to really be saved, means you have to change your calendar because you have to celebrate the Jewish festivals and, and celebrations passed down through the Mosaic Law. And you know what a lot of the Galatian Christians started doing? They went, okay. Makes sense. Why? Why is it so easy to accept that kind of teaching? I'm asking you. Why? Okay, gives a sense of routine and structure. Yeah, we want to have a hand in our own salvation. Hey, that's what, that's what man is telling me to do. I mean, it seems like a lot of smart people are telling me to do this thing. You know, there, there's something within us, this dangerous and often subtle thing that resides within us that desperately wants something to do with our own salvation. We say, well, I believe in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And then we go out and do all we can to gain God's approval by the things we do. There's this prideful default that is tantamount to becoming our own savior. And this is why Paul uses the bold words to the Galatians and he says that they were deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. That it was tantamount to deserting Christ and the Father by saying that the gospel was Christ plus. So what might this look like today? What might it look like today? What are some subtle requirements or amendments um, to the, that, that are sometimes added in our culture, in our day, of the gospel of Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone? You tell me. What are some additions? This is a little hard because now we're fish looking around at our own water. Okay? What, what are some additions? 
Okay, exactly. Speak in tongues. So some would say, to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. I grew up in a culture like that. Not, not, there, there were some within the circles that I grew up, I should say, that, yeah, that was the pressure. If you're really saved, you have to speak in tongues. What else? Works. Works. Let's be specific. What, what do you mean by that? What is it? Okay, so maybe, maybe uh, to really be saved, you're very, very active in service to the church. Tithing, Tithing giving, sure. Baptism, yep. There's, there are people, there are churches that that's their doctrine. You're not really saved unless you're baptized. And I value baptism. I think it's something that should be done quickly. It's the outward sign, right, of an inward change. It's obedience to Christ. Is it salvation? No. Better not miss a Sunday morning. Not miss a Sunday morning. <laughs> Daily devos. Daily devos. All right, we're starting to get on some uh, interesting ground here, right? Well, if I'm really a Christian, I how how much do I pray? How much do I read my Bible? Should a Christian read his Bible? Should a Christian pray? Absolutely. Okay, what measure do I have to do now? Well, if I'm really saved, I probably should pray an hour, a half hour, ten minutes. I mean, you probably have all different... All right, let's... anything else? Giving? Giving? Dress, a certain way. Dress a certain way, sure. Baptism in the Holy Spirit? It's interesting because we're kind of getting two ends of the spectrum here. One is this kind of, you know, tongues bat, uh, tongues, and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Another is dress a certain way. Uh, maybe it's what you avoid eating or drinking. Um, can I go here? I, I, think our, I think our Christian culture a lot of times basically makes you feel like you've got to be a Republican to be a Christian, you know? All right. I'm ready to tar and feather in right now. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm really not. But I'm saying that's the pressure, you know, amongst some, you know, these, you know, the real, in our area, if I can say, a real conservative branch of Christianity, you know, that this is what Christianity is. It aligns itself with this certain political view. and, And then you go into other branches of the church and it wouldn't be that way at all. You go into some kind of Pentecostal branch of the church, they might feel exactly the opposite. And then each one's scratching their head going, how could you possibly be a Christian? How could you possibly be a Christian and be a Republican? How can you possibly be a Christian and be a Democrat? (laughs) I'm telling you, man, we got to start looking around at the water that we are swimming in. If anyone would present to you a different gospel than the one that was handed down from the apostles directly by Jesus Christ, oh man, let him be eternally condemned. No level of devotion to your family, your church, your neighbor, or Christian service could ever gain or maintain your salvation. No outward display such as the way you dress, what you eat, 
uh, what you drink, what you avoid eating and avoid drinking, um, could ever gain or maintain your salvation. No level of morality, no level of religious devotion could ever gain or maintain your, your salvation. Salvation comes by faith in the finished work on the cross and out of the grave of Jesus Christ. Period. Amen. Period. No additions. None. I don't, you know, oh, uh, maybe to be a Christian in this culture, I've got to wear a button-down shirt and, and sit in a blue, stupid folding chair. No, let's, listen. It's salvation in Christ, by Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. The only thing that makes you right before God, it has nothing to do with your rightness. It is that Jesus Christ was perfectly right before God, perfectly righteous, and that he imputes on the one who has faith in him his righteousness. He takes his righteousness. The Bible uses this illustration like a coat, like a cloth. He takes his righteousness and he wraps up the unrighteous in that coat of righteousness and says, oh, my son, my daughter, now you are right before me. Period. Period. Paul says a different gospel is really no gospel at all. It's singular in definition, singular in nature. There are not many ways. There's one way. There are not many truths. There there is only one truth when it comes to salvation and eternal life with God. What are you trusting in? Really examine your heart. And if you are trusting in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, don't pat yourself on the back either, because even that faith is a gift from God, right? Amen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Judaizers doubtlessly came in and said, Hey, you know, this grace, faith, faith, Faith-based salvation, it's just too easy. It's, the standards are too low. Certainly Paul has left things out and dumbed it down so, so he can have many converts. This grace-based salvation is, is reckless. It will lead to an anything-goes mentality. This is still the pushback against the true gospel. It's because it's a misunderstanding of the true gospel. The true gospel is never meant to mean that grace is a free ticket to reckless behavior. Paul will teach later, as one commentator I read said, that with freedom comes responsibility, but that responsibility must come within the context of freedom in Christ, not in the context of of the bondage that comes with rule-based, self-righteous, self-saving behavior and religious systems, not by works, so that no man or woman or child could ever boast. It is God's work from first to last. And the freedom of this true faith has to be governed by the Holy Spirit of God. We'll get into that later in Galatians And in the end, to truly acknowledge the gospel, which just simply means the good news that's handed down from heaven, 
is to acknowledge that the work of Jesus is all-sufficient. All-sufficient. That it is not lacking anything. That you need not and you dare not try and add a thing. There's only one gospel from heaven that changes us from the inside out, that changes our identity and changes our course, granting us eternal life and forever tying us to the destiny, tying our destiny to its proclamation and advancement. It's the good news handed down from the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit that to be justified by God is by faith in Jesus Christ alone who, as Paul wrote, gave himself for our sins to rescue us. What are you trusting in? Let's pray. Father, I want to be bold to pray that as we walk over these, these next couple months through this letter written by Paul, inspired by you, to a church a couple thousand years ago that we we look at the water that we're swimming in. Lord, and that is a hard, hard thing to do. It's much easier to look back and say, man, how'd they get that wrong? Than it is to look at our own situation and say, how are we getting it wrong? Uh, Father, I pray that as we go through this process, we are renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it puts air under our wings. That we are set free from the bondage that holds us so tight when we try and gain your love and your salvation through our works. Lord, may we, every time that temptation comes, may we say it is no gospel at all. It is Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to me by faith, period. Lord, I pray that even today these words went out by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we have the gospel reaffirmed in our hearts and our souls and our minds, and that it does continue to change us, that our mind and our behaviors and our perspectives and values and responses catch up to our new identity, and that our course has changed, <laughs> that everything we do we realize now is married to the gospel. May this be the essence of our lives as we walk through every day and every moment. In the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.